If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and a reality check you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Waitangi Day was yesterday, and one person that I was keen to talk to to get, um, well, her impression of the day but also to talk about the issues of, well, the treaty, principles of the treaty, um, where that is all at politically at the moment, etc. was Professor Elizabeth Rutter. And she joins us on Reality Check Radio. Elizabeth, welcome to our station again. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate the invitation. Of course, um, sociologist of education in the School of Critical Studies, Faculty of Education and Social Work at the University of Auckland, where you are the Director of the Knowledge and Education Research Unit, Keru. And I wonder how you're feeling at the moment, Elizabeth, first of all, after Waitangi Day, but also given the noise. There's a lot of noise around at the moment. So talk about the day first, and then we'll get on to the rest. Well, I'd like to say that I'm really pleased by the noise because what we're finally hearing after, what, nearly four decades is a discussion about tribalism and democracy. So we're now starting to talk about political systems rather than about, you know, whether you're Māori or whether you're um, another type of New Zealander. We're actually now turning to concentrate on what matters and what matters is what sort of political system do we want and um, is there a place for the treaty it. So of course it will be noisy and that will go on for a long time because yeah. there's a one group in particular with highly vested interests. So yeah, no, I'm I'm really pleased by um the, the discussion and the fact that it's no longer people are no longer being silenced by being accused of being racists or whatever. Yeah, it's sort of like um someone sort of um burst the bubble kind of is what you're saying. At last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can talk now, and the more we talk, the better. Okay, so I guess yesterday, Waitangi Day, um, the predictable things happened, um, and it didn't seem to involve too many people. So hardly a sort of like a huge, uh, you know, clash there. Though it was a little um, disrespectful to I think Winston Peters and David Seymour. I don't know about so much Christopher Luxon, uh, but I guess. We have sort of come to expect that kind of behaviour, is it fair to say? Oh, I think it's the, um, the behaviour that you get when you get sort of a mob type, um, um, a bit of the mob starting to happen, a bit of over-emotion, even to the point of a bit of hysteria. People yep. who don't, who should know better are behaving badly, and they should take a look at themselves and say, if I was at home, would I behave in this way? Yeah, if this point. person was in my in my living room, would I speak to them like this? That's, uh, I think a few people need to have a very <laughs> hard look at themselves. Why would... Why would people want to choose tribalism over democracy, do you think? Well, if you're a tribalist, then there are significant rewards for you, yeah. uh, economic access to 
considerable economic resources. And I'm talking um, about things like foreshore and seabed, uh, minerals, the airwaves, flora and fauna. I mean, you look at some of the claims that have been made to the Waitangi Tribunal, we're talking about huge resources. You know, if you were a Marxist, you'd say, you know, the means of production. Um, and as well as that, so there's the, you know, the grab for economic resources, but also for political power, because if you're going to claim that you, uh, you own these resources, then you've got to be able to justify it. And that's where this um, reinvention, this invention of treaty principles come in. They are the mechanism for the power grab. I want to go through sort of the timeline on everything, if you don't mind. Um, let's start off 1840 and let's get it clear because even, I mean, I've heard a lot about this over the time and been involved in news and um, and journalism over the time, and but but still trying to pull all the threads together is kind of challenging. So let's, let's get it clear. In 1840, what did the Treaty of Waitangi actually commit to? And why were Maori keen to sign up, do you think? Well, the committed the treaty committed to three articles. One was um the Article One, the ceding of sovereignty, um, said absolutely to the Queen of England forever the government of all their lands. Article two was the guarantee of full possession um to the owners of lands and so on unless they decided to sell. And then there was the protection for sellers that they needed to sell to the government, to the British Crown, so that the price could be guaranteed um, rather than being swindled by, um, well, <laughs> rogues like those in the New Zealand company. And then right. the third, third article was the uh, rights and privileges of British subjects. Okay, well, the the first articles that was all about what establishing a kind of level playing field for what or who would become a citizen. Well, no, no. The first one, the sovereignty article, is where all the debate is about, and at a certain point, I think that the debate is academic um, because yep. I see the treaty as a historical document important for its symbolic um, value as a historical document, but it was superseded when we moved to democracy with the 1852 Constitution Act. But just to say a little bit more about the idea of sovereignty in Article 1, I know there are, you know, various positions about about it. Um, some say that sovereignty was not ceded. Others, like myself, say it was ceded. Um, then there's debate about if it was ceded or not ceded, then um, who, what is meant by that? You know, was it um, giving the British Crown control over just English settlers? in the new colony? Was it giving the British Crown sovereignty over Māori, over um, land, over, you know, the um, over who could um, sell and purchase land? I mean, what was the sovereignty over? So I think we'll just keep debating that for, for years to come. But as I say, my point is, it doesn't really matter. What happened was um, you had 
people coming together and by 1852, general agreement that there needed to be a a political system which managed how we all operated here. And that system was the beginning of democracy. And I know it was a very limited act. I mean, it excluded women. It excluded people who didn't own or rent um, an amount of property. So it was limited. But just think, 1852, we didn't have any infrastructure, really. We Mm. didn't have sanitation. We didn't have sewerage systems. You name it. So I think it's really remarkable. I'm enormously impressed by our ancestors, both Māori and um, others, who established this way of constituting ourselves in a system that gave um, equal rights to all and and built on that. I mean, gosh, they they probably had a lot of other things to deal with as well, but they... They got the framework established by establishing the House of Representatives. And I really like that term, representatives, you know, a really liberal idea. These people represent someone. Who do they represent? They represent us. And, of course, 1852 was quite limited. And other things that were in the 1852 Act, like the Legislative Council, that that didn't last long. Um, The provinces certainly don't have the power today that they had. But that's, I mean, that's what history is. It's always it evolves, right? The modern world, things change, and as as we desire them to change, we are not fixed at a certain point in 1840 and must adhere to that forever. Yeah, so if if the Treaty of 1840 is superseded by the Constitution Act of 1852, why are we even hung up on the treaty at all? Well, because the treaty is used as a mechanism by tribalists in this power grab I talked about, and it's been a really effective mechanism, and they have managed to, um, you know, to silence any discussion about it, you will be called out as a racist if you attempt to. So, you know, their strategy has been enormously effective. All credit to them. I mean, to the retribalists themselves, to the lawyers who've helped them, to the politicians who've gone along with it, not really looking deeply into what's happened. And worst of all, the mainstream media that has simply accepted the tribalist agenda completely, Never question it. Well, can we explain that? Yeah, yeah, we can actually. Yeah, it's to do with this business of, um, you know, particular group of people, the new professional class of the 70s and onwards, who right. um, are doing doing well by doing good, is the phrase. Uh, these, these are people who um, are caught up in the whole idea of equity. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all had these equal outcomes and we lived in a socialist paradise and you see it with in 1979 for example the secretary general of education bill rennick he said we have moved from equality of opportunity to equity and that was the buzzword and is that is that when it first sort of popped up the word um yeah it had been around a um, a few years, but near that was really when it became. It moved into government circles, into education circles, and people used it. Um, equality of opportunity was seen as some sort of outdated liberal idea, and the notion of equity 
um, equity was going to be the way that all the different groups in society, those who had lost out in the past, they were going to be brought in and we would all live in this um, this new Arcadia. And um, we would link it to a very romantic idea of the past. So yeah. this notion of re- restoring a wonderful past was let's, all sort of connected. Let's talk about that past. What I mean, I guess we kind of generally know what life must have been like um, in tribal Aotearoa or New Zealand, whatever it was called back then. Um, And it sounds like it was not a very happy existence for most people. Let's be honest. It was quite a terrifying way to live, you'd think. Yeah, it was like... So there's no romantic sort of rose-tinted glass view, is there, really? Um, Well, there has been... um in education and certainly in the this the new so-called histories curriculum i mean the word should be history of course the idea that somehow in the past life was you know people lived this fair and just um, life of equality and fairness when for all our ancestors all traditional societies lived in a very Hobbesian, Thomas Hobbes's nasty, brutish and short uh, existence. But in New Zealand in particular, those decades of the tribal wars were extremely horrible. You know, there wouldn't be many traditional societies where you get four decades of utter ruthlessness. Yeah, four decades. Think about that. Yes, it's a long, long time. I mean, World War was what? Four years or five yeah, years. Yeah. Think about 40 years. Well, no wonder. So many chiefs wanted to sign, wanted to um, sign the treaty, wanted to move into what they hope, what they thought the British could provide, you know, the rule of law. And you would too. Anyone would. Yeah. Um, so where or when did um, the word principles appear? relating to the Treaty of Waitangi. When did that start, or that word start to be used? It was first used in the 1975 Treaty of Waitangi Act, and it was just used as a word that referred to, you know, the, the values of the articles. So it was tied to the articles, the meaning of the articles. But in ni- the Treaty of Waitangi Amendment Act of 1985 which allowed for historical settlements to be dated back to 1840, really provided um, those, uh, really enabled a group of people I call a neo-tribal elite to seize the opportunity to realise that re-tribalism was the way to access these resources, these settlements that were opened up to 1840. And, of course, in some cases, they were absolutely justified, but not at all. You know, we we mustn't forget that much of the land was sold, not confiscated, but certainly it was right and just that land confiscated unfairly was to be returned. But then it it didn't take long for those settlements to include, you know, you, you name it. But so 85 was important by um, and at that point, the idea of a new set of principles a new, and what I call the invented principles, the a way of 
um, giving a new meaning to the treaty started to be developed. And from 86, you get the term principles appearing in legislation. Now, of course, because um, no one really knew what they meant, um, various groups started to give meaning to them. You had Robin Cook in the 87 Court, um, Court of Appeal decision referring to it as akin to a partnership. He didn't say it was a partnership, but by crikey, that word partnership really took well, off. Well, you'd, you'd seize on that, wouldn't you? Yes, you, you would, would. and of course that's what happened. Yeah. And and other... Um, so so well, he, he wasn't very... He, he did not wisely choose his words, really. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's why, in the end, decisions must be made by the people through our House of Representatives, and not by lawyers, not by um, by, by other groups, because you've got to have the debate. Um, I think you describe lawyers as the the secular priests. Yes. Yes. So there's there's a a kind of religiosity about this like magical thinking component to all of this. Yes, it's like uh, the idea of the re- a received truth, that there is truth somewhere in the words, and all you have to do is to find that truth. And, of course, pre-enlightenment, that's what relig- um, the clerics, the religious clerics yeah. did. They they revealed the truth that was in um, in any sort of divine script, and the treaty has been treated as sort of the spiritual document. And once you start thinking of it as having a deep spiritual meaning, then you've, then you can, um, you you have people who want to reveal that meaning to us. And, and there've been a number who have done that, including tribalist academics. Yeah, because the um, the sort of Maori existence in New Zealand is is sort of couched in in spiritual terms. Yes, when a lot of the time. Yes, the last census in the last sentence census, there were more Maori who did not have a religion than did. So this idea of somehow Maori that or those who identify as Maori um are more religious, more spiritual than the rest of us is simply not true. Yeah, but uh, but we're made to think that that oh, could yes, be the case. Yes, that's part of this very successful ideology. But yet the 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 grab part of it is pure materialism. Yeah, well, and that's that's why I'm so impressed by the tribalists' strategies because they have really succeeded. I mean, you think of how much they have acquired, the power they have in all our institutions. For example, take mine, the University of Auckland, yeah. um, which is a treaty centrist um, university now. That gives enormous power because then you can have positions for what I call treatyist commissars who are able to check whether, you know, you're all towing the treaty line. Um, so you've got not just mission statements about being treaty centrist, but you've got policy, you, then you've got practice, and you have to have people who can um, who can monitor all of this, who can police it. And that's what we're seeing in our institutions. The term is often um, um, used nowadays, iwi advisor, but I would say, no, it's commissars, treaty yeah. commissars. Yeah, we've been there before in the, in the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so where were the politicians? Because they're the rep- they, they represent the people. It's a democracy. They're there to to be on guard. 
really, to you know, any threat or challenge to the democratic system. Where were they during the 70s and 80s? Well, they were either absent or they had com- be, been completely seduced by this idea that um, of this romanticism, the idea of a kinship group having been revived, kinship group that would look after all its members. And don't forget, this was part of a shift in the and in many countries towards multiculturalism, um, multiculturalism as a political project. It didn't last long um, by the, what was it, Angela Merkel's famous speech in, I think, 2006 or seven. But, you know, the Europeans realised that a multicultural political system was not would would undermine democracy completely. And so you saw a move away from political multiculturalism. I'm not talking about the fact that the population is made up of many groups from various cultures who practice their cultures. I'm talking about the political system itself. So multiculturalism was the flavor of the decade in the nineties. So and we didn't we didn't have multiculturalism. So did we? Our, no, but our, our version of it was biculturalism. Yeah. It was the same idea. Yeah, yeah, of course. Group yeah. of people who were under- But it excluded many, many yes, people as yes. well. Yeah. I mean the criteria for belonging was um a cultural one, but the word culture itself um it became is a complex word, this word culture, because what's really meant is ethnicity. But yeah. culture is much softer. And, of course, ethnicity, too, is a soft version of race. So it was a racial ideology, but it's much nicer to say, you know, a member of, you know, a, a system based on, you know, a cultural group and so on. Sounds much better. But the problem is that you can, the criteria for membership of the group is set in the past. So if you don't have the racial link, the genetic ancestry, you can never be included. And that's why it's a racialized ideology. Um, I remember Winston Peters, I think in the run up to the election, copped quite a bit of criticism for um, comments he made around the meaning of of indigenous. Mm. And I thought, well, before I'd chat to you, I'd look that up. And and I don't think um I, I the word doesn't describe Maori, does it? Because the meaning is originating or occurring naturally in a particular place, native. Everyone's incoming to these lands, right? I mean, no one has originated here. So to play the indigenous card is well, it's it's kind of wrong to use that word, isn't it? And and the reason I mention that is because that automatically sort of confines the conversation to you know something that was always here, and therefore everyone else is a visitor. But but that's not true. And um, I would like to say a bit about that word indigenous because it's been a one a part of the strategies of this tribalist. Um, movement. Um, But just a little bit more about ethnicity. In 1970, there was no mention of the term ethnicity or very rare mention of ethnicity in academic social science circles. A decade later, the term was everywhere. 
And something similar happened with the word indigenous. Now, indigenous was not part of common language until the 80s. And there we see um, people, if we look at, think of um, New Zealand's um, ambassador to the United Nations uh, indigenous um, group, um, in the 1960s, the UN started to use the word indigenous in, when it looked at people's employment relations. And then the term started to spread. Um, it started to be picked up by people who in the United Nations who were starting to make claims. Um, and it was brought back here in the early mid-80s, and boy, did it take off. I mean, within a year, everyone was using the word indigenous, as though we'd all, we'd always used it. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then it was given a Māori term, tangata whenua, which gave the sense of its um, truth and uh, it, it being right, um, the sort of spiritual thing to it. And it was a really useful part of the overall strategy because it was the means not just to say, here is a here are a group here is a group of people who are special, but to say they are special because they are tied to the land. So indigenous did a lot more work than the term um, ethnic. And yeah, no so a, a gift word um, to the retribalists. Oh yes, yes, and they 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 knew it. I mean, these are people whose control of the strategy and control of the language has been brilliant. You know, all credit to them, as I say. Yeah, but when you say that, Elizabeth, it, 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 was that was that like a planned kind of um, you know moves, um, or was it more like these these sort of um, ideas, words, um, ways of doing things, sort of, sort of like fell into their lap? in real time, rather than, you know, setting out some grand strategy and being geniuses ahead of time. Um, Maybe a bit was, of both. It was a bit of both. It was certainly a grand strategy in in terms of a group of people who were interested in acquiring um these productive resources, and then various means came along, particularly controlling the interpretation of the treaty, um, controlling uh, using words um, that that added to all of this. So, but but the, these were people who managed to seize the moment. So, what effect did now the principles of the treaty? Have that's that's sort of like um, that's like strapping on another rocket engine to the whole thing. It sounds like to me. So, where has that taken us to this point now? Well, it's taken us to the subversion of democracy as a political system, and to the possibility that we are going to allow a tribalist political system to um, develop. We were heading that way with Labour, weren't we? It was clear. Oh, gosh, yes. What we have got to do to restore democracy is to remove all references to the principles of the treaty from legislation. And if um, David Seymour's um, act goes through and um, there is a um, referendum about the principles as, as the ACT Party have defined them, if there is public ratification for those, then I think that's fine as long as 
they are not put into any other legislation. If they stand alone as here is an act of parliament which says that the um 1840 treaty meant these things. Well, if it's a standalone piece of legislation, it might act as a bulwark against you know people in the future trying to reinvent principles because the the um, principles that the ACT Party are putting forward are sort of straightforward democratic ones. So let's just um, define the, these principles again. What what are the principles that came out of the late 80s. What well, are these principles? Oh, well, there have been many versions of them, um, versions developed by um, public officials. Uh, the latest seems to be um, Partnership Act of Protection and Redress seems to be what um, yeah. the previous... Pa- partnership is co-governance. Is that what that is? Yes, yes. Co-governance really emerged out of by justifying itself in partnership terms. And once you start to see um, a political system is divided um, in within two groups, um, yeah, that's 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 re-tribalism on one hand, and democracy. Well, no, it's re-tribalism actually. It's either you you are in as a tribal member, or you're not. Yeah, there's no middle ground there. No, no, because it's um, fixed by ancestry. So why do you think, you know, people are are saying things like you're wanting to abolish the treaty, and obviously that that doesn't take into account the 1852 thing, but but the rhetoric is so, you know, heated and inaccurate. I'm pretty sure you're going to say that's, the responsibility of, of of our media. I listened to a podcast you're on with, I think, the Herald Deputy Editor, and I don't know the person, but my view of listening to that was if you're a deputy political editor of a major news publication and you're sounding that confused to me, then there's a problem. Yeah, certainly. Didn't seem to be able to get his head around yeah. anything, and, and there was no clarity there, and, and thank God you were there because you kind of brought some clarity to it. But um, that's what that's the standard of media we have. Yeah, there's that. But there's also we have an education system which since the 90s has removed subjects and replaced them with something called learning areas, um, has really sidelined content, knowledge, and, um, you know, we've got this this real mix of all sorts of things going on in education, but we certainly don't have the the subjects that we we had in the past. Can you can you give me an example of that? Because I'm thinking back to my school days now, yes. um, and it's quite a long time ago now. But um, so so give us a sort of a comparison of the, of the two. Right. Well, because I'm a former English teacher, I'll use <laughs> English as an example. Right. Now, previously and. I can even go back to the 1928 um, syllabus for English uh, for Standard 4 when children were required to continue with their vocabulary development, including correct pronunciation and the correct pronunciation of Māori words. This was 1928. (laughs) And then right up through the 60s, 
children were taught spelling. You know, you had your spelling lists, your vocab lists. Yep. You had to do a lot of writing. So you wrote every day. People were, became good writers simply because you do if you do a lot of it. Yeah. And there was books you had to read, poetry you had to memorize. So you really acquired a deep knowledge of you know, the English canon, English literature written in English, and all the English conventions, punctuation, spelling, and so on. Then in the 1970s, with the shift, um, and I won't go into the reasons for it because that's another huge area, but it was a real shift to the idea that uh, different groups of people think differently, differently, you know, that we're not all human, that we're foremost members of a group, a group that thinks differently, that has a different being, has a different way of thinking. Oh, so, so now we're a group and we're not an individual. Yes. That was, so there was a real shift um, previ- under liberalism. The liberal idea is that um, human beings are both individualized and socialized. You can't be an individual unless you're also a member of a group, you know, a social being. So mm-hmm. liberalism allows for both. Socialism, and I'm speaking using the term very broadly to mean any communitarian group, idea of the group. Um, It could be a group based on kinship, as with tribalism. But communitarian ideas um, are really about you are born into the group and you are created as a member of that group, particularly through language, and that we see a shift there in education with language being seen as um, identity language, as the language of the culture. Right. So you had to be um, educated in the language of your group. Uh, so that was probably the major shift occurring through the 70s and 80s. Uh, oh, the main thing I should have mentioned is grammar, of course. I mean, yeah. you can't. You can't write. You can't be an educated person if you have not been taught grammar properly. So we have seen the complete absence of, apart from the schools, the really good schools that have held on to this this subject, and some have, all credit to them, but we see many children today have not been taught, I think we're into about a second generation of this, have not been taught done daily spelling, punctuation, writing, reading, and so on, as we used to in the past. I could never have imagined in my school years that that what we were doing there could ever be dispensed with. Mm-hmm. But yet it's happened, it seems, from what it's you're saying. It's quite shocking, isn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, so the media then is a product of of that. Yes, I think so. Yes, if we if we see this huge um, shift in education to really non-education from the nineties, late nineties in particular, then what we have now is people moving into middle, even senior positions in the media, in the um, in public service, everywhere, who have not been. Uh, well educated. I mean, as I say, some have because they went to schools that have held on to knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, I want that to be um, re- I really emphasize that. 
Um, and they're the ones who um, are really succeeding. So what we're seeing in education is the gap between um, rich and poor children in, from advantaged and disadvantaged areas increasing because the schools that have held on to knowledge are more likely to be in areas where you know, parents themselves have been able to do well. And so yeah. it doesn't matter whether you're Māori or not. If you go to a school that is held on to knowledge, then you are much more likely to, you know, be able to go to university to be able to, or, or whichever area you want to go into, um, to be successful in a trade, to be successful in a profession, or to be a good journalist. And, of course, journalists in the past... This is what I would like to see, you know. I'd like to see journalists and teachers too having to have a really good degree in subjects like English, history, perhaps science, you know, proper knowledge, and then do training in the craft. Yeah. Well, um, we've talked about journalism quite a bit over the time since we've been on here at RCR, and I've worked in newsrooms over a lot of years, so I've got kind of experience in that and i've seen the change um in in the old style of journalism to more the recent style and i can tell you that the old timers they had a huge history knowledge you know almost encyclopedic some of them and um and referenced that all the time and and had a very healthy suspicion of of anything they were being told and that has flipped to, like I say today, even when no one's even said it, you've got journalists spouting that the treaty is about to be abolished or words that kind of plant those thoughts. So how do you... Uh, there, there's been a change of government. Some haven't got the memo. I guess it's difficult to slow the, the big ship down, but there seems to be some overhang that could cause some damage here potentially are we in a rough spot at the moment do you think elizabeth are we are we in sort of like uh i mean it's always darkest before the dawn but are we could it go still either way is democracy threatened right now or do you think now um we've kind of hit that peak and and we're sort of turning back the other way what, what are your thoughts there well, if you'd asked me this question before the election, I was quite depressed. Right. I really thought that we were in danger of losing um, democracy as a political system. And given we've had it for so long. Yeah. <laughs> but now I'm actually really hopeful. And I have a lot of um, respect for the New Zealand public. I mean, they, they voted in the election and said, we want to get this sorted out. And yeah. they voted for a government, I think, that is, um, well, I hope, we all hope, is able to sort it out. Well, it's an interesting mix. It could have been something different, but it, it turned out this way. And, and the mix is quite interesting, I think. I think we've got some really well-educated people in Parliament now, and they know what's at stake yeah, that's, that's my impression. But the problem is, where do I get my information from? I mean, yeah, I, good point. Yeah, I, I, I still, because I'm a creature of habit, turn on the 
on TV one at six o'clock. I don't night. know how you can handle it. I know, I know, I know. It, at least things, you want to watch it, a clown it, show. It, it's it's time you stopped, and I think I've got to stop because, you know, here's this barrage of of ideological nonsense, of untruths, and of you know a journalist's personal opinions coming at me. And they're, um, and they're so young. As well, a lot of them, and and what do they know? I'm yeah. sorry, don't mean to sound like I'm pulling rank or anything, but you know, <laughs> some of us have been on the planet for a lot longer and have seen a few things, you know. Yeah, no, it's um, I, no, I am highly critical of the mainstream media. I think they need to be called to account. Um, they should, and I, I would go as far as to say that they should be ashamed of themselves. Actually, yeah, hear that, yeah. They should have done a better job. Do you know Radio New Zealand and actually interviewed me in 2006? I don't know how that happened, but since then, nothing, absolutely nothing. Well, you don't fit the, well, I hate to use the word, the narrative. You don't fit the narrative. And to uh, have someone like you appear would then start to contradict the all-in of the last, when was it, 2006 you were last there? Okay, yeah. so do the math. How long has that been? It's been... It's 18 years. Yeah, so... I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I spent 40 years in and out of the place, so... Um, and I'm not no longer there, and, and uh, um, there's no way... I mean, there's some good people there still, but there's no way you can kind of live with yourself in that environment because you know a lot of it is, well, to be brutal, BS... Yeah. Uh, anyway, but if you're happy, we're kind of happy, I think, Elizabeth Rata. If you're feeling better about things, I think we're probably feeling better about <laughs> things. <laughs> Not to put too much on you. God, I hope I'm right then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of common sense. That's an overused term too, but there's a lot of common sense in this in the end, isn't there? Yes, there is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're human first. We're members of whatever group we want to be members of next. And it's disrespectful to all those people, um, you know, Maori chiefs on up from those times to now, because what they did generation after generation is built a remarkable country at the bottom mm. of the world. And that is a, an achievement in of itself. It was incredible. And we disrespect them, don't we? We do. Yes, yes, we do. When you think, you know, I mentioned before about sewerage and sanitation and basic infrastructure. When you think we had a national education system from as early as 1877, we should look back at the 19th century, at all the people who were in New Zealand then and say, thank you. You yeah. didn't always get it right, but Craigie, you got a they lot. Built, they built a railway. They built an electricity <laughs> yes. system that the average person could heat their home and cook with. Yeah. Um, well, you, you know, in 1870, there was only one mile of railroad in the country. 1880, by 1880, there was about um, a thousand. Uh, you know, the industrial legislation of the 1890s, it was yeah. incredible. Uh, widows' pensions, old age pensions in the 1890s. I look back to those 19th century ancestors, Māori and um, colonists, and say thank you. Yeah, I do too. Well, it's been really interesting chatting with you. Thanks for coming on RCR again and talking on my program. Really appreciate it. I think we've, you know, by hearing what 
well, from your knowledge base, we get a pretty clear picture of, well, as clear as we can get it anyway, of where things are at. And like I say, if you're happy, I'm happy. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.